The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. DJ, happy Friday. It is roughly 8 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday, two weeks ago from the time this goes out. So it's not Friday for us, but it is the morning. And as is a tradition, we got our Irish coffee going because we got multiple pods to get through. We are wrapping up the AFC North here on this wonderful summer morning. We're going to be doing kind of a, a high-level overview you know, top level look at free agency additions, rookies, obviously doing predictions for MVP and player of the year, rookie of the year within the AFC North itself. If you didn't catch the ultra, some people say almost too detailed uh, deep dives into each individual team, you can go through the Monday through Thursday episodes this week. And uh, if you happen to be a fan of one of those teams, listen to the whole thing. We go over every single transaction that's happened between the end of last season to now and kind of looking ahead to 2022. This is the macro look for everybody who does not have four and a half hours to do all of that, and you just want the top sheet. But before we get into it, EJ, my wonderful co-host, how are you doing? What are you drinking this morning? Well, I'm glad it's not Friday. You threw me there for a second. Um, No, it is Sunday morning at about 8 a.m., and yes, we do have coffees. Cheers to you. Uh, this has been rolling really well, and I'm excited to talk about this division because this division is always a slugfest. Like, AFC North, even when people say, oh, it's going to be lopsided, somebody's going to run away with it. They never do. They know each other too well. Coaches are extremely well-tenured and just no easy wins in this division. So it's going to be fun to give folks the sort of top-down overall look at what we think is going to happen. Lots of fun players to talk about, so let's roll. So, again, uh, as we do for every division recap episode, a little bit of a 2021, uh, you know, look back to see what happened last year. Cincinnati did win the division at 10-7, and and last place was only two wins behind them. That is how close the AFC North was as a whole. They did send two teams to the playoffs. One was very different than the other (laughs) in terms of a realistic shot at the Lombardi. Um everybody kind of expected the Steelers to get rolled in January and unfortunately they did uh they I don't want to say they were just like the happy to be their team but I think even Steelers fans knew going into that game like oh this is a this is a five percent chance at a win and unfortunately for them the other 95 percent came knocking going into this year honestly the Steelers might have a better shot than they did last year just because of 
the difference in athleticism they have at the quarterback position. But it's neither here nor there. Bengals won the division, made it all the way to the Super Bowl, went on an absolutely unbelievable run through January to get there, and they're only stronger this year. Uh, The Browns uh, and the Ravens kind of floundered with injuries. I would say injuries were their main issue last year, not necessarily the quality of the team or the coaching, but they just could not stay healthy, but still ended up at eight wins apiece. Again, they were not that far behind the Bengals in terms of total wins. And if they were both healthy, who knows, one of them very easily could have won the division anyway. So this is definitely a division where the difference between the best team and the worst team is almost non-existent, you know, health permitting. And uh, in terms of predicting who's going to win it this year, probably one of the harder divisions in the entire league because you you could kind of point to at least three of the teams here and have a decent argument. Yeah, margins are incredibly tight in the AFC North. Uh, people say it's a game of inches. It's a game of seconds. Uh, we saw that last year play out several times. Usually an overtime game per year in this division. Not surprising. It's it's ridiculously tight, and there's so many good players. The rosters are very solid. The coaches, like I said, extremely experienced, and it comes down to a couple of plays. It doesn't seem like over the course of the season that would be the difference. It absolutely is in the AFC North. Now, looking at notable free agency additions, you know, because every single team in this division is trying to stock up and make another run this year. Kind of a top-level look, uh, Baltimore added Morgan Moses and Mike Davis on offense, trying to solidify right tackle and uh, you know giving themselves a, a veteran running back to go to while their top two younger guys, who we both like a lot, J.K. Dobbins and Gus Edwards, are coming off injury. Dobbins in particular, because of the nature of his injury with a multi-ligament tear and the direction that it hit, uh, typical timeline is 12 to 15 months so it might be a decent chunk of chunk of time there during the season where he's not actually getting snaps so the Mike Davis addition I think was crucial to kind of buffer themselves against potentially JK not coming back till the back half of the year if that Uh, Marcus Williams and Kyle Fuller were their two big additions on defense Uh, Marcus Williams is a great young free safety Kyle Fuller is we're not entirely sure what spot he's going to play yet because typically he's been most comfortable at left corner, but Marcus Peters has also been most comfortable at left corner. So which one plays nickel, which one stays outside, you know, does Marlon play nickel and Kyle plays on the right or we don't entirely know what's going to happen yet. We'll kind of keep an eye on it through camp and just kind of see how things shake out, but we'll just kind of go team by team here individually and hit one at a time. Uh, Overall, the, the Ravens additions from a top level, free agency perspective, I think they got stronger this year, significantly stronger. And it was a very Ravens approach. They sort of pick and choose. They don't set the market. They're not in early in the sort of first or second day sweepstakes, throwing a lot of cash at people. They have targets identified. If those targets go off the board, they wait, just like they do in the draft. They're patient, and it paid off for them. They did go get Marcus Williams early. That was their one target where they said, nope, this is this is somebody we want. This is a difference maker. But Kyle Fuller was sitting there for a long time. Morgan Moses, they got fairly early. Mike Davis, I think they identified as a player that fit their system really, really well in terms of power back, more between the tackles, very experienced, 
uh, very durable. So very Ravens additions in both how they made them and who they got. And yeah, it's hard to say that they got worse, even with all the losses that we went through in that particular episode. I think they were very strategic, as they always are under Eric DaCosta, and are set up for, yeah, if they stay healthy, they could be at the top of this division. And seeing what Cincinnati did last year, that's a heck of a statement. I still don't think it's hyperbole. I think they absolutely could win this division, and it's in large part because they keep stocking the cupboard at personnel. Like, they they never are short unless you get a tear last year where injuries hit them early often and just really never stopped. It wasn't one of those teams that like got healthy late and made a run. It was like, Oh, there's still more injuries. They're still limping along. So they just, you know, said, well, that was a bad one. Still won eight games. Most teams would have been six in that scenario. Harbaugh steady hand at the wheel and they're just loading up. We're going to do it again. Yeah, people forget that through the first half of last year, Lamar was seen as a top three MVP candidate in the league, you know, mainly because he was kind of dragging that roster with him, uh, even though they were so banged up and then eventually the injuries just got too much to overcome. But he's still that dude. You know, people don't like to acknowledge that, but he's still that dude. Uh, Cleveland, mostly additions on free agency and through trades on offense, not on defense. They're mostly short up in terms of defensive personnel they didn't really need to attack that that much but um looking at this time last year you know Odell was the number one and and uh Jarvis was the number two neither one of them are there anymore so they had to make a move to try to improve receiver depth they ended up trading a fifth for Amari Cooper and at the time you know people thought ah Amari for 20 million it's a little rough and then the Christian Kirk contract happened like two days later and they're like wow Amari for 20 is really good and it remains really good looking at the the current wide receiver market as it stands today like three months later so getting him for a fifth round pick to be their new number one was fantastic that's great for Jacoby Brissett who they initially brought in as a backup but I think as um as the Deshaun Watson story uh, developed more and more, and it became more clear, honestly, that he should not play this year and probably ever, if even half of the things are true, Jacoby Brissett went from, oh, he's a good depth signing to, oh, he's going to be the starter. So that was, I guess, technically a key signing for them because he's going to play a significant number of snaps this year, whether that was originally intended or not. And then obviously the Deshaun Watson deal was not a good one. And I think going back in time, everybody in that Cleveland front office would say we should not be doing this. But, hey, the quarter billion is already signed for. It's 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 in escrow accounts. It's waiting to be deposited. There's no really no going back on it now. So we'll see what happens in terms of suspensions and, and long-term ramifications. Again, we're recording this like two weeks before the episode drops. So for all we know... There could be even more news, um, to put in perspective, by the way, between the time we recorded the Browns episode, which went live a few days ago, and the time that we recorded this one, it there was a news story that suggested there could be six more lawsuits coming his way. So again, we are we have no idea how long this is going to go on for. We have no idea how deep it goes either way. 
I'm sure the Browns are heavily regretting it right now because it has just been nothing but misery since the day that trade happened. But that's all I'll say about that for now. If you want our full thoughts on the situation, you can go watch the Browns episode because we addressed it there. Uh, and then on defense, again, they were pretty strong in terms of uh, defensive roster, so they just brought in Taven Bryan to be a depth piece at 3-Tech. Overall, um, again, how they handled quarterback, terrible. How they handled everything else, I thought was pretty good. That's fair. <laughs> you know, if you're playing the bootleg drinking game at home, Amari Cooper for a fifth drink, uh, Jacoby Brissett, starting is not ideal for them they didn't plan on that he was signed to be the backup they had a plan at quarterback we won't belabor the point it wasn't a good one he's going to start for them he's an average starter he is not terrible he is not awesome we've seen him in extended action now with a couple of different teams he's a known known he's you know what you're going to get from Jacoby Brissett it's not bad it's not great. It's in the middle. And that's a tough way to go into um, any year, especially in a tough division, saying we don't have a weapon at quarterback. We have a we have a caretaker. We have a guy that can get it done, a guy that people respect, who's going to play hard, but he's probably not going to turn the tables for us in very many games. We're going to have to rely on all the people we've arrayed around him to do that. You know, on that front, Amari Cooper is a very good person to put around someone you're trying to prop up. He can help you. He can break a few games. We'll see what happens. It's so much of every team's performance hinges on their quarterback situation, especially in the current iteration of the NFL with the way the rules are. And if you don't have anything there, you're really starting off behind the eight ball. And that's pretty much it so we'll see how it goes they could of course be another miracle in cleveland they could also be the way we expect and win you know probably eight or nine games with jacoby Brissett starting for the entire year even though they have a very talented roster so we'll wait and see you know i think they did the best they could as whether or not they regret it i i think the people that regretted it when it happened are the same people that are regretting it now and they didn't yeah. necessarily have final say yeah, I think ownership maybe doesn't regret it. The other people that didn't tell ownership no maybe regret that. Um, but anyway, moving on to Pittsburgh. Uh, High-level free agency additions here. Again, if you want the full list, you can go watch the Steelers episode where we kind of dive into why they made the decisions they did and how pressure rates kind of factor into this. Uh, James Daniels uh, and Mason Cole were brought in to solidify center and right guard specifically. Sounds like Kendra Green is going to be competing for uh, with Dotson for the left guard spot. I don't think he's in consideration for center anymore, even though that was a position he played at a, at a pretty good level in college. It seems like they like him better at guard, so he's competing over there and will likely be a swing guard for them. Uh, Mitch Trubisky was brought in originally to be the presumptive starter at quarterback, but they also let him know when they signed him, like, hey, there's a pretty good chance we're going to be drafting a guy here, which, of course, ended up being Kenny Pickett, who we'll talk about in a little while. So there will be a camp battle out in Pittsburgh for the role of starting quarterback early on. I would bet Trubisky wins it initially because what benefit do they have of throwing out a rookie week one? I think Trubisky kind of takes a lot of the, the slings and arrows there for the first 
month or so, and then eventually Pickett comes in. Uh, on defense, Miles Jack, they brought him in to solidify a linebacker, which has been a massive issue for the Steelers for a couple of years now. The Devin Bush pick, it, really the, the trade-up for Devin Bush, because remember they gave up assets to get him originally, has not materialized how, how they hoped. And so they are trying to correct or at least improve the inside linebacker spot by bringing in Miles Jack and paying him a decent chunk of change. He's big, he's strong, he's fast, prototypical Mike linebacker. He's Miles Jack, you know what you're getting with him. Uh, and then Levi Wallace, they paid $4 million to, if I remember correctly, to be their second outside corner across from Akella Witherspoon, who they resigned. And now when you look at their secondary, it's two guys who make $4 million at corner. You have a really aggressive nickel on the inside who's great in run support and a great blitzer. And then you got Minka making 18 on the back end. Minka might actually make as much as the rest of the secondary combined at this point. So they're kind of building around Minka and then just hoping that they can go cheap at corner and that nobody gets hurt because they are super thin there. Theoretically, it could work, but they are on a razor's edge in terms of uh, insulation from injuries. If one guy goes down, there could be trouble here. Steelers defense is built like a baseball team. Strong up the middle, right? Catcher, yeah. pitcher, got your middle infielders and your center fielder. That's where you want to put the money, and that's what the Steelers have done. I mean, they align Miles Jack in front of Minka to, to again, shore up what has been a problem area for them inside linebacker. They always love their defensive tackles and have good ones, and they really built this defense up the middle. They've got T.J. Watt out on the edge. I'm not you know, forgetting about him. We'll talk about him in a bit. But they wanted that strength up the middle. They did not want to get gashed, especially in this division, especially playing Baltimore twice a year, who is going to run hard up the middle. If you have a problem there, they're going to expose it. Steelers didn't want to be exposed there anymore, so they made moves to help them counter that threat in the division because they've got to play well in the division to win. So overall, solid. We'll see how it works. Uh, on paper, you get the idea really quickly. Uh, on the field, we'll see how it translates. Injuries outside in their cornerback core could be disastrous. They, If they take them early or they're of any kind of lasting time frame, I, it's not going to look great. Steelers are very much a next-man-up organization and, and have had success with that. I think they probably internally are crossing their fingers that that doesn't happen to the cornerback position, especially this year. Good luck, because inevitably everybody gets hurt in the NFL. So we'll see. It's a long season at at 17 games now. And that's if you miss the playoffs. It it only gets even more risk as you start getting into the, you know, 20, 21 games, which, you know, playing the Super Bowl, you're going to be at game 21, I think. So, Uh, anywho, Bengals, top level free agency additions. It is offensive line, offensive line, offensive line. Lyle Collins to be the new right tackle, Alex Kappa. Ted Cares to be center and guard, respectively. Hayden Hurst. I'm not entirely sure if Hurst is going to be TE1 or TE2. I suspect we're going to be kind of working that out in camp because he does have TE1 talent. Like, he got drafted in the first round for a reason. But whether or not he's going to be beating out Drew Sample, we'll just see. Uh, And also, they got Mitchell Wilcox there, too. But, you know, he's a UDFA from a couple years ago, so... Again, I'm assuming he's TE1, but we'll see. Um, And then on defense, they added nobody of note because 
they they wanted to spend every cent available to them on helping Joe Burrow not die. And to be honest, I agree with the approach. We've been saying it for since he got drafted. Like, protect him. Protect him. Don't let his knees get beat up. Protect him. Protect him. Please protect him. Please, God, protect him. They finally did. They finally dumped everything in the bucket and said, hey, this was our shortcoming. We still, in some unknown way, made it to the Super Bowl with a sieve of an offensive line. We're going to replace three-fifths of that. We're going to do it with very high-quality players. We're going to put our cash there. That is absolutely the right approach. Yay, Cincinnati. Thanks for listening. Sorry it took so long. I do want to talk about Hayden Hurst because he is going to be TE1 there. People forget that he's moved twice now, and so people go, oh, you know. Well, he moved from a place with Mark Andrews to a place that got Kyle Pitts. Mm -hmm. So I'm not really going to hold it against him. That's two of the top probably five tight ends in the league. Hayden Hurst is a very good player and had a nice run in a couple of spots. Now with Uzama moving on, Hayden Hurst is there, and Joe Burrow is an equal opportunity passer. He will throw it to the open guy. He is fully capable of full field reads, uses them often, and if Hayden Hurst is open, he's going to get the ball, and he can do something with it once he gets it. So I think he's clearly tied in one. I think people are kind of overlooking it because they're like, yay, offensive line, sweet, the Bengals did it. Oh, yeah, and Hayden Hurst. <laughs> he moves in when we talk about path to playing time and everything else, fit with the system, like, He's he's lined up as as clearly as you can be for that TE1 role and he's not a bad player. It's sort of circumstance around him. He moved, you know, they had two great tight ends in Baltimore. They could move him. They did. He gets to Atlanta, they draft Pitts. Pitts is a unicorn. What are you going to do? So, Atlanta is able to let him go. And it's not anything against Hayden Hurst. He's a very productive, very good player was early in his career. Hasn't suffered major injuries like He's he's going to be, I think, as good as Uzama, and I'm a big C.J. Uzama fan. I think he's going to be as good, if not even a, a tick better. That's that's the guy not to overlook. I've always found it ironic that um, you know Baltimore drafted a bunch of tight ends the year that Hurst came out because they didn't really have any. Um, so they drafted Hurst in the first round, and then they drafted Andrews in the third round, and Andrews quickly, I mean quickly, made it known that he was the guy you know yeah. and so i think they moved out of Hurst after like two seasons and, and got like a second round pick from him or something like that because it, it was not long before andrews was was like a, immediately like a top five to six tight end in the league especially once lamar came in because lamar was feeding him like crazy but anyway speaking of drafts notable rookies team by team bases uh once again baltimore nailing it as per tradition they just don't miss and it's we talked about this in the individual team episode that eric DaCosta has an extremely long tenure with that organization it was ozzy's plan then it was ozzy and his plan and now it's his plan to carry forward solo but it's the same plan they haven't shifted horses midstream this is what they do they have their guys marked out. They wait. They're patient every year, both in the draft and UDFAs. Baltimore this year on offense adds Tyler Linderbaum, top-rated center in the draft. They get Daniel Falele, the massive tackle from Minnesota. Hey, little. Uh, a little bit later, and then they get a receiving threat in Charlie Kohler, who is going to be their big slot. Like, 
he he is going to fill that role. And when Ravens fans are looking at the wide receiver depth chart and saying, oh, we don't have enough guys or there's not enough to – like, just look at Mark Andrews, who's a very good receiving tight end, and Charlie Kohler behind him. They're going to line Charlie Kohler up in the slot, and you can basically call that four wide. He's going to work those underneath zones. He's extremely good there in space. He's really long. He's got good hands. That's what he's for, and they grab him late. On defense, they get Kyle Hamilton, the big hitting safety out of Notre Dame. They get David Ojabo, who's not going to have a lot of impact this year, unfortunately, towards Achilles at his pro day, but is a massive value, and Baltimore willing to jump before anybody else to say, we'll we'll take what he's going to be down the line for this pick now. And then Travis Jones, I think the best true nose tackle in this draft, um, if you're looking at just inside players, um, he can go anywhere one to four and be effective. He's extremely athletic. He's really powerful. If you don't believe me, go watch the Clemson tape, Clemson versus UConn last year. He just tossed Clemson offensive linemen left and right. Just a sample of what he can do. He did it at the Senior Bowl as well. So when you look at the, the sort of overall weight of the Baltimore draft class, you're like, damn again yeah i mean not only did they have volume but they had like pick for pick efficiency you know the it's one thing to be a shotgun approach but this was more like shotgun with slugs the sniper shotgun yeah um by the way we went a remarkable amount of time in this episode without a cat sighting i'm I'm surprised almost a half hour through yeah he didn't he didn't even do his little like dance through the background that he normally does (laughs) he just jumped up front and center he's like hey guys it's sunday i'm not gonna do that i'm just i'm here uh, looking at the Draven, uh, Ravens draft class for me, Tyler Linderbaum, I think, is going to be there. Um, it's rare for a guy to be a 10-year player, so we don't say that often. Um, if there was anybody they drafted that I, I think could be a Raven for 10 years, it is Tyler Linderbaum. He's remarkable in terms of his skill set and athleticism, and I, I don't want to say he's a can't-miss prospect because nobody's a can't-miss prospect, but as far as centers go, he's one of the ones that, I've been most comfortable with in terms of uh, in terms of grade. I've been most comfortable projecting him as like a future pro bowler compared to the vast majority of centers over the last five to six years. Uh, Daniel Falele, I think, is a little bit of the exact opposite. I think he's more of a project projection. Excuse me. Um, I do not think that he's going to start. Hence the Morgan Moses pickup, <laughs> which was great for them to prevent Falele from starting. Um, but in terms of a developmental tackle prospect who's still who, who bunch of tools, bunch of size, bunch of length, bunch of power, still a long way to go in terms of technique and everything like that. So yeah, him being a backup for now is great. And then Kohler, I think, is going to be, as you mentioned, a wide receiver with the letters T-E next to his name. He's going to be a big slot for them. Kyle Hamilton is who they brought in to shut down guys like Charlie Kohler. You know, shut down big slots and big tight ends. I don't see him as like a a deep safety type. Uh, I don't see quick enough feet or loose enough hips for him to be reliable as, you know, like a safety that you're putting in quarters and saying, okay, go carry number two vertical. That That's not really his thing. He's more of a true, you know, box enforcer, big slaughter racer, you know, the, the J Ron curses of the world, that type of guy. That is his mold. And he could do that mold extremely well hence why he was picked in the first round, but he's not a do-it-all safety like some of the other guys, not just in this class, but in classes previously. 
So, you know, temper your expectations in terms of what he's going to be doing and, and how well he's going to be doing it. Uh, David Ajabo, I loved him easily, a first-round talent. Really, really sucked about the Achilles. But his former coach at Michigan ended up being the Ravens' defensive coordinator, so he knows him well, knows what he can do. And he says, yeah, if we can get him at a value, we will. Because eventually he's going to be healthy, and when he's healthy, he's going to be amazing. So classic Ravens pickup for them, getting value later than they should. And Travis Jones, I have no idea why he was a a late day two pick. That one was inexplicable to me. He's a bear. He's a straight up bear. My I wish. To, <laughs> I'm not literally, figuratively. I know. A bear. I know. Uh, uh, my comparison for him um, was an odd one because I said I feel like I was watching Larry Allen on defense in terms of just overwhelming size and power and physicality and you know great first step like it looked just like Larry Allen in terms of physical profile different position obviously and uh getting him in the third round I thought was phenomenal again they didn't even need him because they signed Pierce to be their nose this year but if Pierce is playing 30% of the snaps and Jones is playing 30% of the snaps and the other 30% is you know like lighter packages with Matabuike and you know whoever else they have on the interior rotation he's gonna make plays even in that 30 percent so love that pick overall the Ravens class was just it was nuts again we talked about it in the Ravens episode as well that if they want to load up and put two 300 plus pounders in the middle on longer down and distance situations Jones is still going to be able to make plays from the middle and you're not going to run on that setup Right. No. You have those those two rocks in the middle, and you can put whoever you want to go flying off the edges, and you're not going through the middle with those two guys. So gives them a ton of flexibility. Uh, you said Larry Allen. I see some, and I'm not saying he's the same player, so don't freak out. There's some Vince Wilfork to his game. Mm. There's some absolute just I'm rooted. I have huge shoulders, and I'm going to like stand here until I need you to be not in front of me, and then I'm just going to chuck you and go do what I need to do. So, um, great, great haul for Baltimore. Not surprising. Uh, we move on to Cleveland on offense. They had David Bell, the receiver from Purdue and Jerome Ford, the running back from Cincinnati. I think both of us like Ford a little bit better. We'll talk about him, uh, on defense, Martin Emerson, the big corner out of Mississippi state in the sec. One of my personal favorites that I thought was underrated. And then Perion Winfrey penetrating three tech from Oklahoma, who really is that inside slasher more than a block of granite in terms of defensive tackles. I think a lot of people are going to have really high hopes for David Bell because of what you talked about at the top with OBJ and Jarvis Landry moving on. And they're saying, Oh, there's all these targets. I think our expectations are maybe a little more tempered or realistic in the fact that what he's really good at is being a very solid catcher of the football and it is that more Jarvis Landry role he doesn't have the explosion of an OBJ or a lot of other players in this draft he is reliable he does run good routes he is tough so it it's going to be that Jarvis Landry role more than wide receiver one if you want to call him that Jerome Ford Started his career at Alabama, ended up at Cincinnati. All you got to do is watch Cincinnati's run last year to see him contribute in the run game, in the pass game, as a pass protector, um, as a big play threat. He is 
in what I say is the deepest backfield in the league. So his path of playing time's not great, but in the opportunities he does get, I think he's going to be really good. How'd you feel about Cleveland's rookie class? I thought it was solid. Um, there were a couple. There were a couple of picks that I wasn't super wild about, but overall, at least I, I understood what they were trying to do with a lot of these picks. You know, David Bell is a classic Jarvis Landry replacement in terms of skill set and role, and you know, being a a thicker built, tough, contested catcher as a slot receiver who you know maybe doesn't have whole bunch of deep speed uh you know if you like you're not going to be running four verts with him with him at number two and expecting him to you know blow by a safety like that's not the type of slot he is like when they run all that flood stuff with Stefanski which is one of his favorite you know route combinations whether it's weak side flood or strong side flood he's going to be the mid-level threat and you know kind of settling in between um you know a corner underneath and a safety over the top and and that's like the main read that you throw on flood he's going to be that guy and he's going to make a whole bunch of catches on the boundary on that exact, you know, either crossing route or a sail route or anything like that. He is the mid-level threat. And I I think he could absolutely do that role. Again, slightly early for me just looking at Bell in a vacuum. But Bell in that system makes sense for where they picked him. Ford, I thought, was their best value pick. I had him as like a top four running back in this class. I absolutely loved him. He's got great feet. He's a hammer. He's got long speed. He's a fantastic young running back. And even though they have an unbelievable amount of running back talent on the roster right now, they got Chubb, they got Hunt, Dearness Johnson, who they just brought back again, um, Demetric Felton, who's like a hybrid uh, wide receiver slash running back. They got John Kelly and then Jerome Ford. They're, they're six deep, technically, on that depth chart. As soon as they took Ford, and especially as soon as, you know, Johnson was was extended, that signaled to me that Kareem Hunt is on the trade block. I, I would anticipate that he will be moved sometime soon, um, presumably during training camp if somebody gets hurt, like with the Ravens situation last year where, you know, Dobbins went down and then Gus Edwards went down like two days later and they lost their top two backs before the season even started. That's There's a decent chance that's going to happen somewhere else in the league this year. It usually does. And at that point, then Kareem Hunt will get moved for some type of asset because you don't draft Jerome Ford and you don't extend Dearness Johnson unless you don't anticipate that Kareem Hunt's going to be on the roster. So... That's that's my take on that pick at least. Um, and then Emerson, I thought was like a, a solid corner. You know, picked probably appropriate value. Again, maybe like a hair early for me, but not to the point where it really even matters. There was just some guys that I happened to to like a little bit better, but again, it's not even that big of a difference. Perry and Winfrey, I thought, was also a value pick for them in terms of why he slid as far as he did did relative to the talent level he has more off the field stuff than on the field stuff you know not like crime or anything like that um but it just seems like there was some some work ethic stuff that that happened during his time at OU that you know some teams got scared off by and the Browns saw him as a value and said okay yeah fine we can we can work with this and and get the best out of him so if, if we're just looking at pure talent he's extremely explosive extremely powerful 
there's a whole lot of tools to work with there. Uh, they just got to have their coaches get it out of them. One of them is arm length. Yeah, it's like 35, right? 35 and a quarter. Yeah. So for those of you that like watching offensive, defensive line battles and know how important arm length can be if used correctly, Perry and Winfrey has 35, over 35-inch arms. So, And he knows how to use them. He knows how to shoot those out there and, and keep offensive linemen off him. So they can make that work. Emerson we're going to talk about more later because I, I think you're underrating him, but that's okay. We've got another segment on him. Um, I looked it up. Jerome Ford was my fourth running back as well. I thought he was fifth, but I ended up with it. It was one, running back, as you know, is one of those positions I overthink and uh, love scouting. And I had him you know, like fourth, fifth, sixth, right in there in final slotting. He ended up fourth. So great value pick for them. And I agree that you don't plan to go for running backs deep. Like mm-hmm. with contract wise, you don't plan to go running for running backs deep. So we'll see what happens during camp. Moving on to Pittsburgh, the aforementioned Kenny Pickett comes in as their top pick, hometown hero, played at Pitt. George Pickens, the wide receiver from Georgia, who we both absolutely loved, had some injury issues, was coming back at the end of his final season from injury, really wasn't even at full strength and still made some of those plays that reminded you uh, why he was in conversation for top wide receiver in this draft if he had been straight healthy. And then they go and get Calvin Austin the third, a mighty might who is – Small in stature, but huge in playmaking ability. Just uh, an electric player with the ball in his hands, both on offense and special teams. So that's a real value for Pittsburgh. And the defensive side, they bring in DeMarvin Leal, the, we'll just say, defensive lineman from Texas A&M. Texas A&M played him anywhere from straight up zero all the way out to like a five or a seven. We both thought he was maybe a little bit more effective outside. Wanted to see him more there. Seems like the Steelers are bulking him up to play him that sort of true five and in. So we'll see what happens there. But uh, much like their in-division rivals, the Ravens, personnel department at the Steelers is incredibly long-tenured, stable, had a stable transition of power from Kevin Colbert to Omar Khan. And they do things their way. They have their types of players. Now, those do shift to their credit. Um, You know, if you look back at what the Steelers were 10 years ago, they're not drafting the same type of players. They know the league has shifted. They've gone smaller and faster in linebackers is is a very typical example of how that moves. So they do keep up with the times in terms of players they draft. They wish they drafted inside linebackers as well as they draft wide receivers because <laughs> they can't miss on wide receivers and inside linebacker. They've had hits and misses and they wish they had that kind of consistency there, but you know, that's what you do. You grab free agency and say, okay, we'll, we'll bring somebody in from the outside. Cause that one hasn't worked out, but we'll just keep refilling the offensive weapon coffers. As we talked about this in their team episode, how they've sort of, remade the wide receiver position and this draft is a big part of it i i loved what they did uh, on offense around picket the, the actual pick of picket itself i was kind of eh on in terms of process because to me that screamed that they refused to they refused to fully engage in a rebuild um and you know either take a shot on a talented day two guy like Atlanta did, like Tennessee did, and, you know, use the first round pick on a, a higher graded player. There's no other way to say it. Um, 
you know, there were other teams that I think dipped their toe into this draft class while still getting talented players early on. The Steelers were like, let's just get our quarterback and then see what talented players we can get. I would have flipped those two processes myself, um, especially because if they're bad, which they won't be because it's a Mike Tomlin coach team, if they're bad, they just took a quarterback in the first round, they're going to completely avoid next year's extremely talented quarterback class. So they, they have eliminated themselves from even the notion of trading up for Stroud or Levis or Young or Van Dyke or whoever. You know, they, they, they are like, Kenny Pickett is our guy. And Kenny Pickett's fine. I like him as a prospect, but I don't have him in the same within the same realm of a lot of the guys coming out next year. So I think them firmly hitching their wagon to Kenny Pickett was not the process I would have gone with myself. Doesn't make him a bad pick, doesn't make him a bad player, just differences in process here. What I loved was what they did to surround Pickett slash Mitchell Trubisky with talent. You know, again, we talked about the free agency additions uh, with James Daniels and Mason Cole to shore up protection on the interior, which has been a little bit of an issue for them. Um, but, you know, the the Pickens and the Austin picks to make one of the most explosively fun young receiving cores in the league because you got Deontay, you got Chase. Now you got uh, Pickens, who is one of my five best receivers in this class. Like, I think he's absolutely got the talent to be a true number one, even over De- uh, even over Deontay Johnson, I should say. Pickens is incredible. And then Calvin Austin, oh, by the way, as your wide receiver four, <laughs> when he can rip off a touchdown on any given play. If there was a chance that Pickett would, you know, vastly outperform the grade that not just I, but that most people had on him if there was a chance for him to outperform that grade it's in Pittsburgh they got really stable offensive line play now they have unbelievable receiving core they have a great young tight end in Fryermuth, who we both love um Najee I think is a very capable running back who's apparently like 240 pounds now because of course he is classic Steelers there's a lot there for both of these quarterbacks to work with and again, I differ on the process, but in terms of surrounding him with talent, I think they did a good job. You know what occurred to me in between the time we recorded the Pittsburgh episode and this episode that we had, it's a comparison we haven't yet made, but man, does it ring true. Hmm. You know who the Steelers feel like going into 2022? In terms of who they feel like as another team? Mm-hmm. In terms of offense specifically. Who? The Dolphins. Oh, just talent, talent, talent. And then a quarterback who you're like, we're hoping, you know, we we think maybe, possibly, could. He can but be the our skill distributor. Positions are great. Yeah. Yeah. He's our distributor. We have an insanely talented wide receiver core. <laughs> you just said, oh, and a really talented young tight end. And I was like, ah, <laughs> it's the same roster. Like, it's the same approach. And it's so funny that, you know, Miami's head coach is now Pittsburgh's linebacker coach because he's probably having a lot of deja vu going against that offense and saying, this this is basically the same offense I went again in, against in practice last year, except with a much better running back. So, it feels very similar, the approach. Like, hey, you know, Pickett can be 
a playmaker at times, but he is not going to be the playmaker. Neither of us think that. He might be. Let's let's be perfectly honest about that. We don't think, based on what we've seen, and he has the largest body of work of any of the quarterbacks drafted this year. He had the most college snaps. So we feel like we have a pretty good handle on his game, and that game is distributing the football to talented playmakers, and there are a raft of them in Pittsburgh. Their wide receiver core is great. They've got Fryermuth, who we both really like as a tight end. they got Najee, who's one of the best running backs in last year's draft. Like, they've set it up that way, and they're like, okay. you know. And like you said, improved offensive line play, especially on the interior. They're, they're setting it up to be the same model. So fascinating link that we hadn't made previously. I'm trying to remember. I think one of the pre-draft shows, I think I made the comment of like, yeah, I like Pickett, but I'd like him more if Jordan Addison was coming with him. And then he went to a, <laughs> a place where they, yeah, they got a couple Jordan Addisons there. They'll be all right. They'll be fine. <laughs> Moving on to Cincinnati, uh, the unlikely Super Bowl team of last year. Uh, on offense, they had Cordell Volson, the tackle slash guard out of North Dakota State. On defense, they get Dax Hill, the very uh, versatile and talented we can call him safety. We can call him a nickel. We can call him a star. We'll just call him a, a secondary player. Uh, they also get Cam Taylor Britt, the corner for Nebraska, and Tyson Anderson, the safety from Toledo. So within their first five picks, they pick up three secondary players. Uh, we should have probably seen the Jesse Bates contract situation coming uh, based on their draft alone. Cordell Volson, I think we saw him at Shrine Bowl. We both said this feels like one of those players going to get drafted, going to be in the later rounds, going to play a long time, going to come up for that second contract, which will be decent. And everybody's like, where'd Cole Darrell Wilson play? Oh, he was a bison. Yeah, he played at North Dakota State. Just has the right attitude, the right build, is going to be very flexible for them. They need all the offensive line help they can get, so great pick there. Dax Hill, really more of a slot player but can play forward and backward as well as anybody in the draft when i said versatile he is i think the most versatile we'll say secondary player because there was other players like him in this draft jalen petrie was one but i think jalen petrie was better going forward um dax hill has in my opinion equal skill forward and backward cam taylor Britt, good size as a corner going to play physical for them and tyson anderson i really think if if they do let Jesse Bates walk is the eventual in their mind air replacement for that deeper single high. He can play too high too. safety with incredible speed, great range, not necessarily the best size will hit. Um, but you can see that they basically said, we don't need anything, but we're looking Duke Tobin and his staff looking one step ahead and saying, Hey, if we have some losses in the secondary, we're going to, we're going to take some shots in the draft and see if we can fill them up. When you look at their secondary towards the end of last year, you know, like January, their depth chart was Trey Waynes, Eli Apple at corner, Hilton at nickel, we like a lot. Um, and then Von Bill and, and Jesse Bates at safety, we like a lot. But as we went into depth in the Bengals episode, we don't think that Bates is going to be a, a long-term option for this team. If they were going to extend them, they, they would have done it already. You know, but based on how they allocate their money, it, it doesn't seem like he's going to be a long-term option, hence the Dax Hill pick, who, if Hilton goes down at nickel, Hill can play nickel. If one of the safeties goes down, Hill can play safety. So he's kind of like a cure-all for them. Um, but 
looking at that that corner group of Waynes and Apple and Shadobia Wouzier and Vernon Hargraves towards the end of last season, they needed another guy, hence Cam Taylor Britt. And, um, you know, I think that the Tyson Anderson pick was was pure value based on where they got him. Um, at that point, they had three safeties on the roster, so they didn't necessarily need Tyson Anderson for 2022. But 2023 and 2024, if, you know, not just Jesse Bates, but Von Bell is also on the block, um, you know, Tyson Anderson could potentially be a complimentary safety to Dax Hill eventually as a starter there too. So I think not just giving themselves better options at outside corner for 2022, but insulating themselves from the likely losses they're about to take at safety next summer. Very, very good draft for them. And then Cordell Wilson, um, again, they've done a whole lot to kind of rebuild this offensive line or just build it, period. I think that having a very very physically talented young offensive tackle prospect who could potentially also play guard as well if they really start sustaining injuries. Just kind of having him in the bag of clubs is a good thing in general. Obviously, Jonah Williams and Lyle Collins are going to be the starters, but remember, Jonah Williams gave up 10 sacks last year. So having just another guy there that could potentially push him and compete for snaps is great. Um, And then you know, maybe even pushing Carmen for the left guard job too, just depending on where he shakes out. I think this team very much wants to, wants to just put the best five on the field and they're going to figure it out. Uh, Volson, just based on physical talent, could very easily be one of those top five that they put on the field and figure it out. So curious to see where he ends up. Overall, I, I thought Cincinnati had a phenomenal offseason looking at free agency plus draft combined. We went into March after their defeat in February. We went into March screaming for them to do something, and boy, they did something. <laughs> I'm glad. I can. That's like an itch I don't have to scratch anymore. We've been <laughs> scratching that itch for a year and a half since about midway through. Right before the Burrow injury, we were like, man, he is getting beat to death. He is running for his life. He is talented. We're seeing it already in that first half of his first season. There were flash plays from Joe Burrow, but he was under constant siege. And then, of course, the injury happened, and not surprisingly, we are like, bang the drum. Don't let this be Andrew Luck all over again. Help him, help him, help him. And I feel like through last year's draft, we were like, well, they helped a little. I maintained that they didn't help him enough. I finally feel like combination of all their moves. Yeah, they got it right. They got enough bodies uh, in front of him now that are really talented that shouldn't have that level of problem. Now, in terms of storylines or narratives or elevator speech, however you want to phrase it for each individual team, we haven't quite figured out what we want to do. We haven't. We haven't dialed that in. We need a better title. (laughs) Let us know in the comments what the best title for this section is because we have no idea. That's clear at this point. We'll just call it storylines. Yeah. You know, the, the one big through line for each individual team. Number one, Cincinnati. Does Joey B go full serial killer mode? in 2022 and fulfill his destiny to win a Lombardi trophy. Now that he has a better offensive line. I, I think if there was ever a chance for him to do it, it is now, especially considering we expect that 
the roster will look significantly different in 2023 compared to 2022. This is the best the Bengals roster has been since the peak Dalton years. Remember where they started like 11 games in undefeated in that season and they were awesome. And then the thumb injury to Dalton happened and they took on more injuries and they kind of fell apart. This is the best roster since that group that had a legit shot at a Super Bowl. They already went to the Super Bowl last year. They're better this year. The roster will have turnover next year. It's almost guaranteed. This is their chance to do it. Will they do it? It's tough. It's tough for me to say yes or no because there's there's a couple big roadblocks there. But I think Vegas heavily favoring them as one of the top five teams to get odds on, or rather, I guess, one of the top five most likely odds, however you want to phrase it, that is accurate. I do not think they were a flash in the pan. I do not think they're going anywhere. They will be there in the end. The question is, will the difference in 2022 be they hit the touchdown to Jamar Chase instead of taking the sack from Aaron Donald? You're going to bet against Joey Burrow? I'm going to I'm not saying I will. I'm okay. saying it's it I I'm not 100% confident. Like wow. I, I just I I wax poetic about putting money on Indy because there was crazy odds. I think Indy's got talent to knock them off too. It's I'm not betting against it, but I'm not 100% betting on it. All right, fence sitter, that's cool. I <laughs> I don't think I anybody's 100% on betting on anything. If I wanted to be as sure as I could be, I would bet on Joe Burrow. This offense is incredible. They needed Jamar Chase to unlock it, but they had the other pieces. They had their T. Higgins. They had Mixon. We had we talked very little about Mixon. Mixon's awesome. Like Mixon is really, really good. They needed the offensive line help. Burrow is the same guy he was at LSU, the same guy he was his rookie season. He needs the protection. Even without it, he got them. He dragged them to the Super Bowl. If he has time to stand and deliver, forget it. And their defense stepped up down the stretch last year, played well enough, certainly, to win them the game. This is not only the most talented roster they've had since that Dalton team that you mentioned. It might be the most talented roster they've ever had. On offense, I can't think of a more diverse group of talent that's been deeper. They go three wide receivers deep easily with anybody in the league. You know, they replace their tight end with a tight end of equal value. They up their offensive line firepower notably. Mm-hmm. Mixon, as we said, is awesome. Burrow is at the top of his game in terms of quarterbacks that will turn the screws if you give him the chance. The defense, you know, both linebackers in the middle stepped up. Pratt and Wilson, two of my favorites from previous drafts. Um, you know, the secondary, sec- the secondary, <laughs> the secondary has Jesse Bates in it. Um, you know, I I like the fact that they've added a little more corner depth because, like, I don't ever want to depend on Eli Apple. Sorry for the Eli Apple stands out there. But this team is top to bottom really, really good, and Burrow is going to make sure he can push it as far as he can. If he stays upright, I doubt I'll bet against this team all the way to the end. Now, Pittsburgh, the one kind of narrative through line for Pittsburgh. Who is playing quarterback and when? You know, we we, <laughs> we obviously think that Trubisky is going to be the early starter because he's going to get deference as a veteran, and I, I, I truly think he's going to be the guy early on, regardless of how Pickett's looking in camp, because they have more 
there's more positives to letting Pickett kind of sit and learn for a bit than than anything, especially if Mitch at least looks competent. If Mitch looks competent, they're going to give him a shot because he's earned that. He came to Pittsburgh to get his shot. But how long does that last? That's kind of the, the main question here is how many games do we go before the itch to start the rookie really hits? It might honestly just depend on what their win-loss record is because if they feel like the season is slipping away, Mike Tomlin's never had a losing season and he's not about to start now. Um, if they kind of feel like it's starting to slip away because they got the Bengals early, they got the Patriots early, they got the the Browns early, which as of this moment, we don't know who's starting at quarterback for them. We assume it's going to be Jacoby Brissett, but if it's not, that's a tough game to win. The Jets are a much improved team. And then they got the Bills in week five. If they start out two and three, one and four, and they start to feel the AFC really outpacing them by a lot, we could see Pickett thrown in there as just, you know, their, their, their Hail Mary shot to still try to go to the playoffs because the Steelers are always 100% like we're not focused on 2023 and 2024. We're focused on 2022. That is how they operate. It's how they've always operated. I could see Pickett getting in before the halfway point of the season because of that. If Mitch looks better, if the Brian Dable, uh, you know, school for kids who can't play quarterback good and want to learn how to do other things good too, if that worked on Trubisky and they're sitting at three and two or four and one and they're in the driver's seat for either outright a division lead or a wild card spot, we might not see Pickett at all. So I think it truly does just depend on how does Mitch look for if we even see Pickett take the field and if they're a playoff team, which I'm not 100% sure they will be, if they're a playoff team, then the question becomes, what do you do in 2023? <laughs> because at that point, how do you get rid of Mitchell if he led you to the playoffs and if he's playing well? So maybe that's questions we'll answer in the future. But for now, the main narrative is who is the quarterback and for how long? I think the most telling thing will be if Pickett starts week one. If Pickett starts week one, he vastly outperformed Trubisky. Like, again, for all the it, reasons It would you have said, to be not close at all for that. That's happen. right. In yeah. terms of uh, the Steelers enjoy a veteran presence, they will give deference to that. And if it's anywhere close, they'll go with the veteran. And I'm not saying Mitch doesn't deserve that chance. I'm fascinated to see how Mitch has progressed under Dable's you know, very dust approach in Buffalo. I hope it's great because Mitch is a solid guy with a lot of skills and he did put together some good quarterbacking in Chicago. He didn't do it consistently, but I want to see if he's progressed because there's a lot of talent there. If he ends up riding the pine week one as the guy holding the clipboard for Kenny Pickett, Kenny Pickett had an exceptional camp and the Steelers believe that he can be that high level distributor to their very talented offense and take them to wins because as you said they're never going to start out saying well it's a development year we're going to we're going to see what we have and nope not in Pittsburgh they're going to be we're driving for division lead division win playoffs and then see what we get so that'll be the the sort of most telling other than that if you go along with Trubisky and he takes you to the playoffs you're right the offseason gets fascinatingly interesting because you've already invested a first round pick and pick it you 
don't really know what he has in game action if Trubisky carries you all the way to the playoffs and you you ride that particular horse. Do you keep Mitch around for another year? Do you try and move Pickett and draft somebody else that you like better? Like it, it just becomes a fascinating game of moving pieces at that point. So we'll see what happens, but it definitely hinges on quarterback play in Pittsburgh. Because it's not even like Trubisky's old. No. Like he's still in his like mid to late 20s. Like in quarterback years, he's fairly young. So if he looks like a, a whole new man, there's a lot of reasons to, you know, maybe hitch your, your horse to that wagon again in 2023. I can't believe I'm advocating for this, but I am. You know, again, it's a big if, a lot of ifs, but yeah, it's worth at least talking about. Uh, Cleveland, the main narrative through line for this season. How far can this team, which is very talented, go with Jacoby Brissett, who we assume is going to be the starter the entire year for good reason? Is this a lost year, or do they have a shot to push for the playoffs? For me, I see this as a lost year. I really do. I think regardless of what was happening with Baker, it sounds like they didn't want him there anymore. Let's take out the Deshaun thing. Let's take out the Brissett thing. I think at this point, based on the fire hose of leaks that has been happening since the Baker trade to Carolina... It sounds like they were not going to keep him no matter what. Now, the process of replacing him, obviously you and I disagree with what they did to do that, but I think he was going to be replaced regardless. And I think that if they use the assets that they used to acquire Deshaun to acquire somebody else in this class on day two, whether it was Ritter, whether it was Malik Willis, you know, somebody who we really like the talent. Hell, I would even throw Kenny Pickett in there. Again, I didn't have a first-round grade on, on Kenny Pickett, but let's just say they, they took him at some point in the draft, too. I would have more confidence about them making the playoffs with that than I would with Jacoby Brissett. Hmm. And he would have been a hell of a lot cheaper than a quarter billion dollars, too. But, hey, that's neither here nor there. So, again, I, I talked about how I kind of disagreed with the process of Pittsburgh. I really, really disagreed with the process of Cleveland and even though I think Brissett is a capable backup, he is not somebody that I'm starting for 17 games and feeling remotely confident about making the playoffs. I think they threw away this year for bad reasons. And I think this talented roster, which is talented, could potentially not be nearly as talented next year. And they don't have any first-round picks to show for it. Um, and I... I just, I heavily, heavily disagree with the process of it all. It was a bad trade from a process standpoint, not just from a moral obligation standpoint. And I think they completely wasted 2022. They might have even wasted 2023. For what? A guy that hasn't played quarterback in 18 months? It's just, it's bad process. Flip side of all that gloom and doom, which I agree with, by the way, Every bit of it. I think the trade they made is going to hurt the organization for a long time. Um, they will be incredibly lucky if it does anything besides that. That is the overwhelming projection for that action at this point. If Stefanski and company win the AFC North, he's probably got my coach of the year vote. It would be a fucking miracle. Right. 
And I said that at the top, that it could be another miracle in Cleveland. If it, if they do that, it is. Like, I'm telling you right now, I'm planting that flag. If he wins the AFC North with Jacoby Brissett leading this roster, again, we've talked about it. it's a murderer's row. It's a really, really difficult division to play in. They beat the living heck out of each other for the entire year. If he comes out on top with all the question marks, with all the strife, if he's able to focus this team on the field, and win this division, he probably gets my coach of the year vote, regardless of what anybody else does. Because, yes, it's a talented team. It takes more than that in the modern NFL to win. He's able to elevate the rest of the team around Jacoby Brissett and win this one. Yeah, he's going to get that kind of recognition. That's the level of achievement that would represent. Narrative through lines for Baltimore. Back from the injury bug, fingers crossed. <laughs> Hopefully, it's it's the Ravens, so I'm, like, I'm just waiting. I'm waiting for it to happen again. Yeah. Um, back from the injury bug for 2022. They might not even be fully back from it till November, so keep that in mind. Um, can Greg Roman's passing scheme thrive in an NFL that is moving towards a you know odd front match quarters meta? where they use safeties playing from two high looks in order to handle motion better, which the Ravens love motion. They use safeties from two high looks to handle um, a lot of the deep passing game, which especially kind of the, the deep crosses and everything like that, that teams like Kansas City and the Chargers and all them really, and especially Buffalo too, really started hurting people with. So people started playing quarters to handle that better. And also, you know, using rangy safeties that love to hit to handle um the the outside running game you know the the crack toss schemes outside zone that, that kind of stuff because it's a little bit easier for the safeties to get an angle on that and turn things back inside when they're too high so there's a myriad of reasons why you want to play too high these days to match up with the crossing routes and the and the the space weapons that consistently attack outside the numbers can greg roman's passing scheme thrive against those types of defense with things that beat quarters, you know, pin routes with a deep post behind it. Um, you know, the, the quick passing game, which sometimes they've leaned into, but not really like there's a lot of space underneath. Will they commit to just dink and dunk and dink and dunk and dink and dunk and then take a shot. We haven't seen them ever do that before. So, eh. and then, um, <laughs> you know, attacking the interior, with uh with the running game you know sometimes i feel like they got a little bit too cute and tried to go outside a little bit too much specifically with lamar because he was their best running threat and when they run lamar a lot of the times it's outside you know will they go back to what we want them to do which is you know line up the gus bus or or davis or whoever and just fucking hammer people inside i i remain cautiously optimistic yes but it's Greg Roman, and sometimes we we don't really know what Greg's going to do till halfway through the year, and uh, we'll we'll see. But again, my main my main point with Baltimore this year is fingers crossed because if it all works, it's great. But by God, it hasn't worked in a while. <laughs> I want to see it flex. That's no surprise to anybody that listens to this podcast. I've been critical of Roman's passing game. I love. Roman's running game, Baltimore's running game. 
outside or inside? Yes, they leaned a little bit more outside last year with all the injuries. Year before, the combination of running plays, the timing with which he calls them, the balance inside, outside. One of the most fun run games in the NFL to watch if you appreciate that kind of thing. His passing game is the flip side of that card. It is not fun, and it doesn't flex as much as it needs to. He needs to adapt that, and Harbaugh really is the head coach of this particular ship needs to go yo you need to adapt it i know you believe in your stuff i believe in you your stuff is dated and people have caught up with your passing game running game then you know we're still getting our gains passing game we haven't threatened anybody in a long time and if you look at the way defenses align against baltimore they align against the run with a hedge against lamar running Mm -hmm. that's the way they align because they know you're not going to beat us with passing game concepts. There has to be a little bit more spice. There has to be a little bit more variation. They have to try some things that they haven't done. I know injuries were a thing even before the injuries. Um, I won't be surprised to see Hollywood Brown be a whole different kind of effective in a different and more wide open passing game. So that's telling you know, that in Arizona. Yep. (laughs) So that's telling that it's not just the talent you have, right? The talent you have goes somewhere else, and you see them be more dynamic, be more open, uh, get more yards after the catch. All those things that you see with a sort of, I'll say, properly constructed or modern passing game, I want to see more of that. I need to see more of that from Baltimore. And quite frankly, it would make Baltimore's life easier. Right now, they're a little bit predictable uh, when when they go for the pass. So... I hope you said a bunch of things during your little summary. I was like, yeah, I hope, meh, maybe, uh, you know, it'd be nice. That's the bus we're on. And I think if it doesn't change, we're going to be saying at the end of this year, it was a year too late, right? Should have made the move last year. You need that dynamism. You need to be ahead. I, I look at teams that really have made that leap, like the Rams with Sean McVay. His system was good. The NFL caught up. He didn't wait. He didn't just go back and say, I just need to run it better. It's execution. No, he completely revamped the way he did things and has every time. He sort of relentlessly innovates. Roman, to me, in the passing game, feels on the other end of that scale in the NFL. Um, Doesn't do that maybe as quickly as he needs to or as much, and I want to see both, like now. All right, it is predictions time, The, uh, the segment that you've all been waiting for. 2022 AFC North predictions, starting with division MVP. Most of the time, you and I are, are usually in heavily uh, in heavy agreement in terms of who we think the MVP of any given division is going to be, because it's usually just who's the best quarterback. The AFC North is a peculiar division in the sense that there's a lot of quarterbacks to choose from. Uh, you went with Joe Burrow because of your undying love for Joe Burrow. Yes. I went with Lamar Jackson because... I think that, you know, looking last year at how Lamar was dragging this team, kicking and screaming to wins by himself Mm -hmm. as it is until the injuries just became too much even for him to overcome. I have a sneaking suspicion we might see some similar performances this year where it is Lamar versus the 22 other guys on the field. And he's going to do crazy things with his feet. He's going to make some crazy throws. Uh, He looks bigger, by the way. I don't know if you've seen the, the picture of him floating around from off-season workouts, like, he is fucking yoked. Like, he put on extra weight because I think even he realized, like, I'm going to get hit a lot. 
I need to be able to take the punishment, but he looks shredded right now. And uh, so I'm going to go with Lamar just because I think that the team around him, it's good. They've drafted well, but I think the star power around him is not comparable to the star power around Joe Burrow. And I think Lamar is going to be, is going to have to do more with a little bit less, not a lot of bit less, a little bit less. And so I kind of lean more towards him for MVP, but make your case for Joey B. I already made my case for Joey B. I'll just stick with it. I'm I'm not willing to shake a one iron at the sky in a lightning storm and say, you can't hit this. Uh, because I feel like Joe will hear that and just to spite me, go to the Super Bowl and say, yep, see, told you. So not willing to bet against him. Love all your arguments for Lamar. And think you're correct that he is going to have a higher percentage of plays that run through him in the Baltimore offense than do, you know, Burrow in the Cincinnati offense. And certainly is going to do more with his legs always. But as a passer, I again, I want to see that because I am not one of those people that thinks Lamar is a runner first. He's not. It's been clear since college. I am the exact opposite of that. I'm the guy that's been pounding the table saying, no, no, no. <laughs> Lamar is a very dangerous passing threat in the NFL, one of the most dangerous. I want to see him be able to unleash that more. Uh, if he does, he could easily win MVP of the division. Um, and I would love that, quite frankly. But I'm not betting against Joey B. <laughs> Offensive player of the year. You and I are in agreement on this one. Jamar Chase, um, not only is he the best receiver in the division, he's one of the three best receivers in the league at this point, And he's only coming off his rookie year. If I had to pick, if, if I had every you know receiver in the, in the entire NFL and I could pick, whoever I wanted to be in my number one. I would not get past the first two before I start looking at Jamar Chase. Like, And even then, Devontae Adams is the only one that's like, absolutely for sure. Like, who do you want to be your number one in 2022? It's Devontae Adams, and then it starts to get, ooh, it's a little tough. You know, Justin Jefferson is up there. Um but if I just that, said man. that, if I just said you want Jamar Chase or Justin Jefferson, which one do you want? That's like, the thing. Is I, I, not I, even I was, a... <laughs> was kind of like, ooh, I don't know, because they're they're real close. They're really close. Oh. And and that's that's my point. Is like other than Devontae, there's none that's cut and dry in the entire league, and he's only in his second year. So I I have to go with him for offensive player of the year for this division maybe even offensive player of the year of the entire league because I think that he's now going to get to run a wider variety of routes than just like fades and fade it. stops, yeah. you know? Now they're actually going to be able to run other stuff because they're going to be able to get more into the three and uh, into the five and seven step uh, drop back pass game. I, I truly think that he could be like a 2,000 yard receiver, which sounds insane, but I think that he could be that guy. He's dominant. That's the reason I voted for him. His dominance was clear from when he stepped on the field. Everybody was like, oh, I don't know, wide receiver, tackle, wide receiver, tackle. And look, I was banging the drum for tackle, but I still say Chase was the right pick. And I said it middle of last year. Changed that offense immediately as a rookie. Came in, dominated people. None of this, I'm getting up to speed. None of this, I'm adjusting to the speed of the game. Nope, I'm making the game fit my speed from the jump, 
and carried it all the way through to the Super Bowl. Uh, you can't do any more than he did in a rookie year nine times out of ten. Have there been better rookie years? A couple? <laughs> I would Maybe. say a few. Uh, when you're talking about it in those terms, when you're talking about you know it being difficult when you get past one receiver in the NFL to not start thinking about picking him, he's dominant. He's absolutely the offensive player of the year in this division if he stays healthy. Defensive player of the year, I think you learned from a past mistake. Uh, last year, you had uh, T.J. Watt as an honorable mention for your defensive player of the year for the entire league. Yeah. Uh, this year, we're just we're cutting right to the chase and saying, yeah, T.J. Watt, not just you know best defensive player in the league last year, arguably, arguably, want to use that term with an asterisk, um, but within the the AFC North division itself, especially T.J. Watt, has to be the pick absolutely has to be the pick and I, I think that we're not going to make that mistake two years in a row of having a being be an honorable mention he's a front runner now there was that itch at the end of our last year's episode when we were talking about who the defensive player of the year was going to be and i basically mentioned him as an also ran and i look at all the guys that i mentioned in front of him and i'm like why why did you do that why did you wait not waiting this year he is the most dominant defensive player in this division I would say pretty easily. There's a lot of good ones. He's the most dominant defensive player in this division, period, end of story. Then you start talking about the entire league, and that's where it gets arguable when you start talking about people like Aaron Donald, who is a guaranteed first ballot Hall of Famer no matter when he quits. Uh, you know, If you're talking about somebody in the same breath or saying they come right after, just like we just talked about Devontae Adams in the wide receiver rankings, if you're talking about somebody like that in the defensive player rankings, yeah, they're winning defensive player of the year, at least in their own division, if not being in the running for the whole NFL. Offensive rookie of the year, uh, we both differed a little bit on this one again. You went with George Pickens, which makes all the sense in the world. Um, I think that he could get significant snaps uh, as a rookie, even in a very talented receiving core, because I think just looking at skill set, and I was a big fan of Chase Claypool coming out. You know that. We saw him live at Senior Bowl, and we were both like, ooh, damn, there's something there. Uh, big fan of Claypool. I think Pickens is a better version of Chase Claypool when Claypool was coming out of Notre Dame, and that says a lot because we were big fans of him. So I totally understand that pick, but I'm, I, I have to go with Tyler Linderbaum because I think in terms of transforming an offense, for me specifically, I think Tyler Linderbaum is going to do more to elevate his quarterback than even Pickens will do in, 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 in Pittsburgh, mainly because I think that he's going to bring consistency and outrageous talent to their run schemes, which do get very creative. Uh, he's going to do a lot of the stuff that Kate, that Kelsey does in Philly. He's going to do that in Baltimore. And I also think he's a much better pass protector than they're used to having at center as well, which the more Lamar is upright to throw, the better things will be for Baltimore. So I, I struggled with this one. My initial thought was right there with you. It was Pickens. But at, uh, my my ending thought was, Will it be harder for the Steelers to survive without Pickens than it will be for the Ravens to survive without Linderbaum? And that's kind of the delineation for me there. For base thinking, I completely agree with you in terms of overall impact. Like, Linderbaum's going to play more snaps. 
he's going to have more impact in the Ravens scheme than Pickens ever will in the Steelers scheme, not because of lack of talent, but because of the position he plays. He's literally touching the ball every single snap that they have. And he's got the talent to do it. It's tough for offensive linemen to win these awards. In terms of pure impact, I'm with you. Linderbaum, 100%. In terms of who might win, it's still going to be tough for Pickens because he's going to have to earn those catches. It's not like he's the automatic presumptive starter as the number one in Pittsburgh. He's not. He's probably the number three going in. And how many number threes put up you know, enough uh, yards, production, touchdowns, splash plays, whatever you want to grade it on to be in an award category this would be a situation where Pickens comes in, is healthy, picks up the scheme quickly, and finds favor with whomever is playing quarterback in Pittsburgh. That's the one downside of voting for Pickens is he's going to have to have somebody chucking him the ball with some consistency, and he's the wide receiver number three. So this is a bit of a dark horse, not just because of the player and the talent, but more because of situation for me. But still going to reach, still going to stay Pickens. Defensive rookie of the year. Uh, you and I both struggled on this one because there's not a whole lot of defensive players to pick from that are rookies that will get significant snaps. Like there's some really good defensive players in the division. Like we we like Travis Jones. We like Kyle Hamilton. Obviously, Ojabo, who might not even play this year. But in terms of finding one that that we like a lot that will also play a lot, it's yeah. not really an option there. I went with Dax Hill because I think that at some point he's going to get on the field somehow, whether it's as a third safety in dime looks or you know maybe a nickel goes down and he plays nickel. He'll get on the field somehow, but even then I don't anticipate him playing more than like 30% of the snaps. I, I, I didn't really have any other options to work with there. Yeah, limited number of options in this particular category. I'm reaching deep on this one. I'm going with Martin Emerson. I said we'd talk about him later, the big corner out of the SEC. This really hinges on Greedy Williams' health. Greedy Williams, very good corner, a lot of potential, has not stayed on the field, has not been healthy, has struggled with that his whole NFL career, which has been short. This pick on my part is saying I think Greedy Williams gets dinged up, Martin Emerson comes in, plays at a solid level. And again, there's not too many other people that'll be pushing him for this particular honor in the division. So I'm going to reach and say, I think Martin Emerson, if he gets his chance, stays on the field, gives them a very solid option at corner that they come to rely on. And that would be how he wins the award. It would be a stretch and it definitely requires some other moving pieces, not just his own performance of play. Coach of the year within the AFC North. You went with Zach Taylor for obvious reasons. I went with Mike Tomlin because even though, and we kind of touched on this in the Steelers-specific episode, their schedule is an absolute grind. It's yeah. horrific in terms of trying to project them to be a playoff team. It's not that they don't have any talent, but they have a an absolutely insane schedule with either a rookie quarterback or Mitchell Trubisky. And extremely thin at corner. And outside <laughs> and, and, of and, one and, and, and. inside linebacker <laughs> questions that position too. Yeah. It's an uphill battle. I don't think they'll be bad because they're incapable of being bad under Mike Tomlin. It's hard for me to project they're going to be good. But if they do end up being above 500 again and making a playoff push again, I have to put Mike Tomlin as coach of the year in this division because he's got maybe the hardest path 
out of all of them without obviously knowing what's going to be happening in Cleveland. Taking Cleveland out of the equation, he's got the hardest path between Pittsburgh, Baltimore, and Cincy. And if he can pull this off and just not even be a seventh seed, just push for a seventh seed, I got to give it to him because that would be a hell of a job. He's done so many amazing coaching jobs in his time in Pittsburgh. It would rank right up there with them. I'm going to go chalk and say Zach Taylor. I believe in the Bengals. I do not think they were flashing a pan. I do think they're better. I really feel like they're going to be putting their foot on people's neck this year, pushing for some of the most wins in the entire conference. Forget the division. And typically teams that make that kind of push, um, their coaches are the ones that win these awards. Uh, coaches like Tomlin, uh, if they do make that kind of push, are the ones that are considered for these awards. It'd be in the running. Um, it's tough to say the coach of a 13-win team potentially is not coach of the year in a conference. So going to go with Zach Taylor because I really think the Bengals are going to boat race some people this year. They're not going to let up. Uh, Burrow is not one to look past games, nor is he willing to let people up off the mat once they put him down. He's going to keep pouring points on until they pull him out and let the backup play. That's how he is. All gas, no breaks. So going to be tough to vote against that for me. As long as he's, you know, Burrow is upright and on the field, Zach Taylor is going to look like a genius. Well, if it hasn't been completely obvious by how we've talked about this team this entire week, uh, we both shared the pick for division winner at Cincinnati. Not much more that needs to be said. They have an amazing quarterback. They upgraded offensive line. They still have incredible skill position players. They're deep in the secondary, at least for this year. They've got an underrated pass rush duo. They've got a million young linebackers to pick from. There's a lot to love with this Cincinnati roster and the Cincinnati coaching staff and the Cincinnati quarterback. Everything's lining up for them to be, if not, right back in the Super Bowl, at least in the mix to go to the Super Bowl. I think that you could very easily argue for, you know, maybe like a Cincinnati-Buffalo AFC Championship game. If I was going to bet on one result, that's probably one of the main ones that I'd be looking at. As chalky as it sounds, because everything's lining up for both those teams right now, I think uh, I think picking them to win the division, again, might be a little bit cliche at this point, but how can you not? I can't. So I do, and it'll be fun to watch this division as always because best laid plans, no matter how it looks on paper, (laughs) this division is a fight. It is a fight every year. Uh, You can say, oh, that team's down, and they can come right back and slug one of the other teams in the mouth and you know steal a win from them on a Thursday night football game with some weather, and you're like, "Ah, not really surprised. A little surprised, but I'm not really surprised. It's the AFC North, just kind of the way that it goes. So great division, tons of talent, lots of storylines. We're going to enjoy watching it all year. I hope all of you do as well. We'll be back next week with NFC North, starting off with the Detroit Lions, which is a team we've been waiting eagerly to get to for roughly a month now. Uh, Hope you join us for that. lot to go over in that division. I mean, a lot to go over. See you Monday morning, and uh, until then, later. Take care.